and certainly welcome to everyone. And I'll tell you, it is a blessing to be here. And I thank God for giving me the opportunity to be able to feed the flock. Um, I've heard some comments there about uh, my location right now. I'm in my office. I normally, you can, somebody commented on my fireplace chat that I, I used to do, but right now, we have a 30-year-old parrot that's living in our living room, and he would actually enjoy sharing in the sermon. There was no doubt about that. And in addition to that, not too too long ago, my wife decided to bring two demon cats into our house, and they would be walking on my keyboard. So I've elected to actually use my office. The lighting's actually better in here, so I'm kind of happy for that. But it is a pleasure to be here. I would much prefer, to be honest with you, to be at a podium or somewhere where I could look at all of you and see all of you and talk to you. I, I really enjoy that sort of thing. But obviously, the world we live in, that, that's not something we can do at this time. But anyway, let me, uh, let me go on about the sermon. Um, I've selected this sermon for a particular purpose. We we have gone through the spring holy days. We we went through unleavened bread. We went through Pentecost, and and when we went through even in Pentecost, I know that we have been selected to be the first fruits of God's kingdom, and that's such a wonderful thing. But I want to remind everybody, we're not there. You're not in God's kingdom yet. We we have a long way to go. We we still need to be resurrected. And after the resurrection, we still need to deal with trumpets. We need to deal with atonement. And then finally, we get into the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. But all these things, all of them, they hinge on the covenants that we agree to with God. I want, want to make it very clear about that. So what I am talking to tonight a little bit, and, and the title is The Old Covenant Versus the New Covenant. So... Let me, let me go back, and I want to go back to the Old Covenant first and go through a few things, because the God originally made a covenant with, the ancient, with ancient Israel after their escape from Egypt, after they left Egypt, and they left with miraculous signs and wonders, you know, and he continued with these miracles as they continued their journey through the desert on the way to the Promised Land. These people saw miracle after miracle after miracle, and they were blessed by God. And yet, not far from the journey from Egypt, they began to grumble. They began to complain. Now, these people that just, these are the people that just witnessed water turned into blood with, with the fish dying and the river that stank. The nation overrun with frogs, remember that? The lice, the flies, the Egyptians' loss of their livestock, everyone inflicted with boils and sores. I mean, these are, these are miraculous things. I don't think any of us have ever seen any of this stuff. They witnessed hail and fire mingled with, with I mean, uh, hail and fire mingled with the hail. And finally, the locusts invaded their homes. Unbelievable darkness covered the land, and they finally witnessed the death of all the firstborn of the Egyptians. This is horrendous. It is absolutely horrendous. And yet, after all this, 
We see in Exodus 16 where they began to complain about Moses and about Aaron being in the wilderness. Notice in verse 3, that's Exodus 16, and in verse 3. And it's, here they are, all oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is shortly after these miracles, brethren. What gratitude, what thanks, what appreciation for what God had done. Nevertheless, God continued to perform miracles by providing them bread and water and protection as they continued to travel on their journey. And then finally, then finally, we're told in Exodus 19, just before the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 19 and in verse 1, where he said, in the third month, when the children of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And then he told Moses to tell them in verse 4, he told him, he said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Well, there's, there's a subtle warning right there. And how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you unto myself. And then he goes on. Then he goes on to explain his objectives for doing this in verses 5 and 6. When he says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a, now notice this, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. What a calling. What a calling. We're going to get to that later in the new covenant. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, and notice this out of Revelation, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God was about to set them aside as a special people to show the world what a blessing it is for a nation that lives by the word of God. What a wonderful opportunity. Now bear in mind that it's clear that these people were not special because they did something great, but because they were the seed of Abraham and God was using them to make them special. This applies to us today, by the way. I'll get into that in the New Covenant. Then in verse 11, God tells Moses to tell the people. He tells them to tell the people. He said, be ready. This is verse 11. Be ready for the third day. For on that third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people. Something we've never seen upon Mount Sinai. And on the third day. It tells us in verse 16, and it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and there was lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was exceedingly loud so that all the people in the camp trembled. Pretty frightening. And what a magnificent, spectacular performance by God to display to the entire people. They knew he was present. And then on the very day of the Feast of the First Fruits, 
God gave them his commandments in chapter 20. And of course, the people saw all this thunder. They saw all this lightning and the sound of the trumpet. Got to be pretty frightening. And they were obviously in fear of the Lord. I'm sure you and I would be. And then in verse 20, skipping over the Ten Commandments, but in verse 20 of, of chapter 20, Moses explained to the people, he gave them a purpose. Why was he doing this? He said, do not fear, for God has come to prove you. And so that his fear may be before you, your faces. And here comes the point that God is making. It's the bottom line when he says, so that you may not sin. Pretty explicit, pretty clear. And what an awesome experience and the beginning of God's covenant with the children of Israel. Then we go through the next several chapters where it lays out all the expectations of God. And then we come to chapter 24. Come to chapter 24. This is all under the old covenant. And verse 3. This is when he says, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. In other, other words, everything that God expected them to do to become this special people in the sight of the world. And here was the reason for the people to this covenant. Here is the reason. And all the people answered with one voice and said, notice this, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. They were agreeing to the covenant with the Lord. And then in verse 7, after the sacrifices, after the peace offerings, after all these things, he, Moses, he took the book of the covenant and he read in the ears of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and we will be obedient. Is this what the people actually did? And we know, we know the rest of the story there. In Deuteronomy 8 and in verse 1, Deuteronomy 8 and in verse 1, God reminded them. He said, all the commandments which I command you this day shall you be diligent to observe and to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then they're reminded in verse 3 of why God did this when he says, and he humbled you and allowed you to hunger. And then he fed you with manna, which you didn't know, neither did your fathers know it. And here it is again, very clearly and succinctly stated why God chose them as a people, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. That's quite a statement. He then goes on to remind them that their clothes didn't wear out in the wilderness, their shoes didn't wear out in the wilderness, Think of that miracle. Are any of you still wearing the same clothes you did 40 years ago? 
I laugh about that. I may still have a leisure suit somewhere up here in my closet. I hope not, but I may be there. He provided their every need. Remember, there were no stores anywhere in the desert. They couldn't buy any groceries. They couldn't buy any clothing. They had to totally rely on God. Now, we know the history of ancient Israel. We, we know their history and how they went from generation to generation, breaking the laws of God, to eventually go into captivity, and then to repent, be returned to prosperity, and this cycle was renewed over and over and over again until God finally sent Israel into captivity and scattered them among the nations of the world. They were all over, never to be known again as the nation of Israel. God's chosen people, they simply did not keep their covenant with God. Now, that's a lesson for us today. How about the people, and I, I, when I think about this, how about the people of America? But I want to make this clear. It's not America. It's America. It's Great Britain. It's Canada. It's, it's Australia. It's New Zealand. I don't, I don't care where you are. We, we are the blessed people. If we continue into verse 7, it says, The Lord, your God, brings you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you shall eat bread without scarceness. Think, who'd, think who's had that. You shall not lack anything in it. It is the land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig copper. Does this not seem like an accurate description of, of those nations that I just mentioned? Now, we in America, along with the others, are covenant people of God. We're modern Israel. And we've indeed been blessed above all the nations on earth. And I can tell you from traveling the world extensively that this nation has been blessed above all it, that I've ever seen in my lifetime. You know, I've, I've literally traveled the world. I've been almost, I was in the Navy. I've, I've traveled almost to the uh, North Pole. I've been almost to the South Pole. I've traveled to the, across the Atlantic, to the Mediterranean, up into the Black Sea. I've been in, in the South Atlantic. I've been through the uh, Pacific. I've been into the Indian Ocean. I, I mean, I have traveled, I believe, through over 70-some countries. And we're truly blessed. But once again, I ask the question, are we grateful? Are we appreciative and thankful to God for the blessings that have been bestowed on us? Oh, that's a blanket statement, brother. That's a blanket statement. Now, we haven't changed much, I don't think, from ancient Israel. As a nation, are we keeping our end of the covenant? Let's keep in mind the fact that God often does things with conditions. We talk about, Fred talks about that, the if factor. 
accompanies a lot of God's promises. And we're familiar with Deuteronomy 28, and I'm not going to go through all of Deuteronomy 28, but let's just read again what was to accompany God's covenant with Israel. So beginning in verse 1, Deuteronomy 28, and he says, And it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations on earth. That's quite a promise. But God then explains to them all the blessings that they could receive by keeping, the, keeping their end of this covenant. Wonderful blessings. We've certainly seen many. Notice, though, that all these blessings are accompanied with the words, if you shall do all his commandments. We're then told in verse 15, and it shall come to pass, if, there's that if factor again, you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to do and observe all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Very clear. You either keep the commandments, you do not keep the commandments. If you do, it's a blessing. If you don't, it's going to be curses. God then goes on to explain all the things that will happen to a nation that refuses to keep the commandments. Now, I don't, in this sermon, don't have time to go into all Deuteronomy 28 and all those blessings and all those cursings. We've certainly been blessed. I will tell you that. I know my life has. I'm afraid we're losing it. I don't think we're going to enjoy it much longer. We're heading down a slippery slope right now. But to cut to the chase, ancient Israel never received all the promised blessings of God because they refused to keep his commandments. Nevertheless, God made a promise to Abraham that cannot be broken, cannot be broken. The promise was made to Abraham after he showed that he would follow all of God's commandments, regardless of the consequences. And he proved that when he was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice as God commanded. Think about that. We find that promise in, uh, to Abraham in Genesis 22 and in verse 16. This, when God told Abraham, <clears throat> he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not committed your son, your only son. Now, uh, we know that he had other, other children, but we're talking his only son from his wife Sarah. Here comes the promise, verse 17, that in blessing, I will bless you. And in multiplying, I will multiply your seed like the stars of heaven. And as the sand which is upon the seashore, unbelievable, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Quite a, quite a promise. And your seed shall all the, through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We know that's through Jesus Christ. Why did he do this? Because you have obeyed my voice. You did what I told you to do. I wanted to find out if you're going to follow me. 
Now, it's not my purpose to go into all these blessings at this time. You can find them all in Genesis 27 when, when Isaac blessed Jacob, and again in Genesis 49 when Jacob passed the blessings on to his children. The point I want to make here is that God always keeps his promises. And as a result, modern Israel, Great Britain, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they've all received the bulk of these promised blessings. Nevertheless, Britain and the United States and others have not kept their covenant with God. That if factor of Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15 applies to modern Israel as well as those Israelites that fled Egypt. As a result, we have already witnessed a major decline of the once Great Britain, and now America is facing a rapid decline. Brethren, I've never seen anything like I'm looking at right now in this country. I'm sorry. I don't like the, I don't want to get into all that. Not the purpose of all this, but I got to tell you, if something doesn't change, we're, we're in serious trouble in this country. All this is taking place because they refuse to keep God's commandments, period. You know, it's interesting to consider that ancient Israel would have received all the blessings that have been bestowed on Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the United States, had they kept their covenant with God and continued to keep his commandments. Instead, they were scattered. They lost their identity. They were no longer known as Israel. And now we, modern Israel, the recipients of those blessings promised to Abraham, are unwilling to acknowledge where those blessings come from. That's sad. That is really sad. Israelites are indeed a stiff-necked people, as God told Moses in Exodus 32 and in verse 9, when he said to him, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You know, with the exception of the promise of Christ's coming through the seed of Judah, all these promises are physical in nature. All the rest are physical in nature. They deal, they deal with property. They deal with territory. They deal with food. They deal with shelter. They deal with protection. They deal with peace. They deal with prosperity. We today, you and I, people I'm talking to, enjoy those blessings, even though they may be short-lived. Nevertheless, God knew they could not keep his laws and his commandments in the spirit of the law. He knew that. God tells us in Jeremiah 24, in Jeremiah 24, and in verse 7, he tells us that I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. I gave a long sermon on the I am. That I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
for they shall return to me with a whole heart. In other words, God had a plan that through his spirit, he would give his people the ability to keep his commandments in the spirit of the law, in the spirit of the law. However, prior to the coming of Christ, it was clear that they would not be able to discern or truly understand God's laws. Speaking to ancient Israel in Deuteronomy 29, that's Deuteronomy 29 and verse 3, he tells them this. He said, your eyes have seen the great trials, the signs, and the great miracles. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. This would not take place until Christ. What's interesting to note is that God still keeps the majority of the world blind to his plan until Christ. Along with the first fruits, established God's kingdom here on earth. Now let me just quote a portion of what Christ said in Matthew 13, just a, just a portion when the disciples actually asked Christ why he spoke to them in parables. Now we've read this before. Now notice what he, notice what we just read in Deuteronomy 29, how he did not give them a heart to perceive, eyes to see, ears to hear. In Matthew 13, and in verse 13, Matthew 13, verse 13, Christ answers the disciples when he tells them, because seeing, they see not. Did we just not read that? And hearing, they hear not, and neither do they understand. Then in verse 15, he makes it clear why they're not being called at that time or this time, when he tells them, for the heart of this people has grown fat, and their ears are dull hearing, and their eyes have closed. Sound familiar? Now I want to <clears throat> I want to fast forward a little bit to the New Testament at this point, to the New Covenant. Let me get into the New Covenant. Now God tells us in Hebrews eight and verses eight through ten. Hebrews eight, verses eight through ten. He said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. And here in verse 9, he makes it clear that this new covenant will not be under the same conditions as the ones that he made with Israel at Mount Sinai. He makes that very clear. He says, not according to the covenant, that I made with their fathers in the day that I took hold of their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Then once again, God gives us a reason that he does this. He said, because they did not continue in my covenant. Now, I disregarded them, says the Lord. 
Then he goes on to describe the type of covenant, this new covenant will be in verse 10. When he says, for this is the covenant that I will establish with the house of Israel. Are we the house of Israel? After those days, says the Lord, I will give my laws into their minds and I will inscribe them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's, that's what we live in today. This new covenant now makes that old covenant null and void. Oh boy, you hear that from a lot of Protestants all the time. Oh, it's the old covenant. It's all done away with. The laws were all done. All that stuff's done away with. No, we know that's not true. But it did make the original covenant null and void. In verse 13, and speaking of the new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. And he says, now that which has become old and obsolete is about to disappear. Doesn't exist. <clears throat> you know, ancient Israel certainly could have done a better job of keeping the covenant with God. And they would have received the many promised physical blessings. But God has a future plan through Christ. And he actually revealed this plan to Ezekiel in chapter 11 and in verse 19 and 20. Again, that's in Ezekiel 11, chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. When he says, <clears throat> and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you. In other words, without the spirit of God, it is impossible to keep the spirit of God's laws. It's impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it. And he continues, and I will remove that stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. Once again, here he tells Israel, ancient Israel, his purpose in selecting them. He gives his purpose of the new covenant in verse 20. When he says, so that they may walk in my statues and they keep my ordinances and do them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. So once again, we see God selecting people to carry out his plans. People, once again, chosen to set an example to the rest of the world and a people to represent him and his way of life. He has a purpose for all these things he does. Ancient Israel failed to do that. They were to be a special people. They were, to, they were to set an example to the rest of the world. Had they done that, they would have been blessed tremendously physically. But Christ is the author of the new covenant. And Hebrews 10 offers us a clear explanation of the new covenant in verse 4. That's Hebrews 10. And in verse 4, 
where we're told it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A lot of those we can't sacrifice. Bulls and goats are not going to take away sins. Only Christ, the one who has created all things, including human life, can offer up the sacrifice of taking away the sins of the world. Now hold your place in Hebrews 10 for just a second, and let, let me briefly refer to John 1, a very common scripture. John 1 and, and verse 2 and 4, we're speaking of Christ, and, and he tells us he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. He was the creator of everything that we see, that we feel, that we everything we look at. And not even one thing that was created came into being without him. In him was life, and life was the light of men. That's quite a statement. The God, of, the God, the creator, that created everything, came into the world, became a human, and that had to sacrifice. Now let's go back to Hebrews 10. Once again here, speaking of Christ in verse 9. Hebrews 10, verse 9, where it says, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first covenant in order that he may establish the second covenant, the new covenant, by whose will we are sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In verse 12, it says, but he, speaking of Christ, excuse me, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. And in verse 14, for by one offering, he has obtained eternal perfection for those who are sanctified. Brother, what a, what a tremendous blessing that that is. And here is the promise of God's spirit in verse 15. When it says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after he had previously said, this is the new covenant that I will establish with them after those days, like we read back in, in Jacob. Says the Lord, I will give my laws into their hearts and I will inscribe them on their minds. What a wonderful thing. And here in verse 17 is the wonderful promise of the new covenant. This is the promise of the new covenant and their sins and their lawlessness I will not remember ever again. We're all sinful people. We've all been through that. Don't ever claim you've never sinned, you've never done anything. The Bible makes it very clear. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. The effectiveness of the new covenant requires God's Holy Spirit dwelling within man. It's required. In John 14, John 14, Christ makes the promise of the Holy Spirit to the disciples when he told them in verse 15, what did he tell them? The very first thing he said, keep my commandments. 
we as a nation and as a people keeping God's commandments. He tells them, keep my commandments. And then in verse 16, he tells them how this will take place. He said, and I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that it may be with you throughout the age, even the spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive because it perceives it not, nor knows it, but you know it because it dwells with you and shall be within you. Brethren, this is the new covenant. It, it's not as so many preach in some of the Protestant churches, the law was done away with, but that the spirit of God helping man keep those commandments. That's what it's about. And we know that on the day of Pentecost, the disciples received the promise of God's Holy Spirit. That's in Acts 2 and beginning in verse 1. Acts 2 and beginning in verse 1, where we're told, and when the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, by the way, the same day God appeared to ancient Israel at Mount Sinai, was being fulfilled, they were all, notice this, they were all with one accord in the same place, all with one accord. If you remember, ancient Israel was also with one accord, we will do all that God tells us to do. Verse two, and suddenly, well, you talk about miracles again, stuff we've never seen, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the rushing of a powerful wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And in verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Tremendous miracle. You know, God sent Moses to Egypt to rescue a people from slavery. These were the generations that came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they were given, they were given the opportunity to be a special people to represent God and his way of life to the rest of the world. That was the purpose. They were given this opportunity to enter into a promised land of milk and honey. They were all physical promises, by the way. And they were all based on man's ability to perform God's will and that if factor. If you perform what you've promised, you will receive these blessings. They did not live up to their promise and they failed to receive the blessings of the old covenant. So in comparing the old covenant to the new covenant, we, like ancient Israel, were living in slavery. We were slaves to the world and its way of life, its sins. We read in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 2 and beginning in verse 1, we read, it says, Now you were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, we were no different than ancient Israel that walked and lived as the Egyptians. In verse 2, in which you walked in times past according to the course of this world, 
is speaking to you and I according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now working within the children of disobedience, among whom also we all, noticed here, it doesn't just say a few, he's talking about all, that includes you and I, among whom also we all once had our conduct in the lusts of the flesh, doing the things willed by the flesh and by the mind. And remember what we read in Hebrews 10.16, where God said he will inscribe his laws in our mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath. Even as the rest of the world, you know, we were no different than the rest of the world. Hopefully we are now. Hopefully. And as God sent Moses to rescue the children of Israel from Egypt, from sin, he sent Christ to rescue you and me from this sinful world that we live in. And as the ancient Israelites departed Egypt, sin, he required them to repent. He gave them a complete set of laws, Sabbaths, holy days, all those things to live by. And they were all in one accord and agreed to this covenant with God. And like Israel, we're called to come out of sin, to repent, and to change our attitude, and to change our behavior. You know, ancient Israel spent the next 40 years in the wilderness awaiting the promised land because of their rebellion. And they were not allowed to enter that land. We, in a similar fashion, are in a wilderness. Look at the world we live in today. Do I need to go through that? We still live in a sinful world, awaiting the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God. We have a new covenant, but the culmination of that covenant will not be complete until the return of Christ, until we have been resurrected. We're still on our trip. We're still on our way to God's kingdom. Ancient Israel was baptized into the Red Sea. Their old life was buried along with the death of the Egyptians. <clears throat> they were now, <clears throat> excuse me, they were now to live a new life on their way to the promised land. That's it. Came out of sin, came out of Egypt, went through, went through baptism in, in the Red Sea. We, in a similar fashion, are baptized by the immersion in water the burial of our old self. But as part of the new covenant, we have had our minds changed as God promised by his Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. So what is my point since much of this is covered at services on Pentecost? My question today is, so what happens now? Pentecost is passed. God's Holy Spirit's been given? Do we sit and simply wait for the return of Christ? And what happens if Christ doesn't return during our lifetime? You know, I remember back in the 1970s, I was convinced that Christ was going to return in five to seven years. I'll bet there's some of you out there remember that. 
How many of you remember? Or what if prophecy isn't being filled to our expectations? Are we going to be like ancient Israel when Moses went in to the instructions from God and was delayed in returning? And we know the story in Exodus 32 and in verse 1, where we were all told, when the people, again, that's Exodus 32, verse 1, we're familiar with this. We're told when the people saw that Moses de or de delayed coming down from the mountain, then the people gathered themselves to Aaron, and they said to him, oh, make us gods which will go before us for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Remember, this is the people that firsthand witnessed all the miracles of God. If Christ is delayed in returning, are we going to lose faith? Oh, let, 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 me go, let me find a new church. Follow a new man. Or even drop out and return to the things of the world. I saw many people do that in the downfall of uh, Worldwide Church of God. Many of us have already seen that happen in, in some other associations. Brethren, Pentecost is not the end, but the beginning. We have become the first fruits to do the work and the will of our Father. And we have a responsibility to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. And we have a need to build up and teach our individual families. And we need to renew our responsibilities in service to God as well as to each other. But as we proceed forward as first fruits, we need to be aware that it actually costs to follow Christ. There's a cost involved. Let us remember what Christ taught us in Luke 14 and beginning in verse 26. That's Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, and in addition, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He makes it pretty clear here there is a price to pay for submitting to a Christian way of life. Being first fruits does not come without a price. Then in verse 28, verse 28, he tells us, for which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether it is sufficient for its completion? All of us, all of us at this point should have counted the cost. But let's look at some of the costs. Hopefully I got time to go through these. Number one, this may sound a little strange, but a Christ-centered way of life will cost you your favorite sins. Strange? Let's face it, we all know we have sins. John tells us in 1 John 1, 1 John 1 and in verse 8, that if you say that you do not have sins, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, are we to continue in these sins? Please understand we are to be a special people set aside by God as an example to the rest of the world. We're told by Paul in Hebrews 12 and in verse 1, Hebrews 12 and in verse 1, therefore, since we 
are surrounded by such a great throng of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entraps us and let us run the race set before us with endurance. You know, Paul using the analogy that we're in a race to the kingdom of God. <laughs> Let's ask ourselves a couple of questions concerning sin. What sin keeps you in bondage? Do you have any? Don't know. Of what would you be ashamed of if Christ returned today? What do you keep secret from others? What makes others wonder if you're genuine? Remember, we need to keep examining ourselves because a full surrender demands that we deal with our favorite sins. Number two. A Christ-centered life will cost you the favor of the world. Sounds strange. Most of the world lives in darkness, and many hate the Christian way of life, and we're seeing that more every day. We're not allowed to love the world. We're told in 1 John 2, 1 John 2, and verses 15 and 16, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Its main focus still on worldly things. Is our focus more on our homes and our jobs and our promotions and the things of this world than it is on our covenant with God? Verse 16, because everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pretentious pride of physical life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Christ came as a light into the world, but the world loved darkness. In, in John 3 and at verse 19, John 3, verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. But men love darkness. People don't like to, people to see their sins. Rather than the light, because their works were evil. People prefer darkness to hide their way of life. This was our previous way of life. And we're not to live that way anymore. That's to be done, gone, over. And we're told in Matthew 5 and in verse 16, that's Matthew 5 and in verse 16, that you are to let your light shine before men. Are we doing that? So that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Remember that under the old covenant, ancient Israel was to be a special people and an example to the rest of the world, as a light to the rest of the world. Overall, that didn't happen. And we have the same responsibility under the new covenant. However, when we live this way, it's going to bring rejection from the world. And we need to be prepared to deal with that rejection. How many of you have ever lost close relationships with coworkers, with families, with friends? because of what we believe and what we practice. I can attest to that. I personally sometimes have a closer relationship with some people in the church than I do with members of my own family. They, they just don't understand why I don't keep Christmas, Easter, holidays, why I don't attend services on a Sunday. <clears throat> you know, we were warned ahead of time that this would be the price we would pay for being lights to the world. In John 15, beginning in verse 19, John 15, beginning in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
However, because you are not of the world, the world hates you for this. The world doesn't understand, and they hate it when we bring lights to the sins of the world. They don't want to hear it. In fact, I don't know how much longer certain things will be allowed to be preached at all. Remember the word that I spoke to you. We're also to save a second tithe so we can go to the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're, we're certainly encouraged to give offerings. I'm not going to go into all that. I don't have time to go through all that. But there is a cost, both physically and financially, to being a, a Christian and following God. Now, how about us personally? How many people in the church have lost their job by refusing to work on the Sabbath and God's holy days? How about the days we all take off for work to observe the holy days and the Feast of Tabernacles? But all these things are physical in nature, and all wealth belongs to God. All wealth in this world is temporary. You know, in Matthew 19, and we're told the story of the young man, we remember that story, he came to Christ and he said, well, I have to do, keep the commandments, and he he, he just gave up, and he was just, because he was very wealthy, and he didn't want to give it up. There is a cost to being a disciple of Christ. We have already been there. But in Matthew 14, Matthew 14 and verse 27, we're told that whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> you know, the Apostle Paul probably gives us the best example of the cost of following Christ in Philippians 3. Paul had a lot going for him. He was a Pharisee. He was in high standing with respect to his position in the law. Oh, he was successful. He was well on his way up the ladder to success. And like many of us, he was working diligently toward the success of the world until Christ intervened. Let me just begin in, in verse 6, Philippians 3, where it says, With respect to zeal, Paul was persecuting the church. In other words, he believed in what he was doing, and he felt he was blameless in regards to the law. With respect to righteousness. That is in the law, blameless. But then in verse 8, he tells us, but then truly, I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul recognized there was nothing worth, nothing worth the truth of God and the knowledge that he was given by Christ. He lost everything he had been working for as the cost for following Christ continued. He says, whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He gave up everything to be a Christian. But what did he say of all those things were worth? He said, and count them as done that I may gain Christ. You know, Paul obviously recognized the value of giving up all that he had for Christ as he continues in verse 11, when he said, if by any means... <clears throat> I may attain unto the resurrection. Notice he was focused on the future, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul fully realized that all the temporary pleasures of this life was not worth the gift of eternal life. You know, we all may have to give up things that seem so important in this world. Loss of family relationships, loss of friends, loss of jobs, loss of income and the loss of many of the comforts of this world. And I truly believe that as we draw closer and closer to this end, the suffering is going to get much greater. We know that. We, we, 
if you if you follow prophecy at all. I had a minister one time come to my house many years ago in the Worldwide Church of God when it was going through its problems. That minister told me he could have had all that I had and more. I, I'm wondering where did he go? I, I live pretty modestly. Uh, Steve's been to my house, a few others. I live fairly modest. I have no idea whatever brought that up, but he said he could have been a pilot. He had a pilot's license. He could have been a professional golfer had it not been for the church. That sounded to me as if he was better for giving up physical things of the world for following Christ. He certainly didn't have Paul's attitude toward loss. And from what I've heard, he's no longer in any of the churches of God. Paul realized he was just in the beginning of the new covenant. Remember what I said earlier, Pentecost is just the beginning. It is not the end. You're not resurrected yet. Paul recognized that his rewards to be a, were to be obtained in the future and what his attitude needed to be present now. In verse 13, he tells us, brethren, I do not count myself as having attained. He wasn't there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, forget the things that are behind and reaching forth to the things that are ahead. His whole focus was on the future, on God's kingdom. And then Paul tells us what our direction should be after having received God's Holy Spirit, what we should be doing following Pentecost. Paul continues in verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize, prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. After ancient Israel, passed through the Red Sea and became first fruits on the day of Pentecost. They were still in the wilderness, had not obtained the promises of God. They gave up a lot, but they had to be patient as God tried them to see if they would be a special people, a special nation. They were promised a wonderful future, but it was based on that if factor, if they followed God and kept his commandments that they grumbled, they complained, they refused to keep his laws, and as a result, they never reached the promised land. Brethren, Pentecost is past, and we're still in the wilderness. In this sinful world of Satan, like Paul, we have not yet obtained. We have a promise of a much better world ahead. Speaking of the cost of being a Christian, there is nothing in this world that can replace the value of eternal life in God's kingdom. Nothing. But we ain't there yet, folks. This day is yet in the future. If we believe in prophecy, we can expect some rocky, rough times ahead. Christ speaking through the Apostle John in Revelation 3 concerning the church in Philadelphia had this to say to us today. Let's begin in verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says the Holy One, the one who is true, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Does God know your works? And, and, all, and all, all these things that works, does he see them? Behold, I have set before you an open door. It's an invitation. A destiny if we faithfully continue to move forward. We can't look back. And no one has the power to shut it because you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I'm trying to wrap this up here. I guess I had a little too much material. But drop down to verse 10 and ask yourself, is he speaking to me here? Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the time of temptation, which is about to come upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. As we approach the end of this age, we know times will become very difficult for human life. But Christ offers us protection from the temptations to come. Then he tells us in verse 11, he said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, we don't know the day, the hour, the time, the events, when they'll take place, but we better be prepared. So he tells us, hold fast that which you have. In other words, don't give up, don't quit, don't walk away, because he tells us so that no one may take away your crown. You know, we have a position, an office, and a crown waiting for us if we follow and stay the course. We're still wandering around in the wilderness. But here comes the promise. Here comes what you can look forward to if you stay the course. The one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and then it no longer becomes temporary like our life currently is. And he shall not go out anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which will come down out of the heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Brethren, what a marvelous, wonderful promise we have been given concerning the future, and there, and, and there, is there anything in this temporary world worth giving up for that promise? Anything. You know, we're told in Psalm 90, I'm not going to go into that, I guess. I'm going to kind of cut it short because I'm running out of time. But we know that we're either given three, three score and ten or four score, and I'm sure many of you are like me, and we pass that four score mark. There's nothing we can do to change that. Our time here on earth in our physical body passes like a breath of wind. And we're told it is full of sorrow and trouble. But in verse 12, we're taught a lesson. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Brethren, Pentecost is only the beginning, and we must move forward. There's a cause for continuing a Christian way of life, but the future we're promised is far greater than the cost of anything we face in our physical life. So once again, take the advice of Jesus Christ when he tells us, hold fast. That what you have, you have so, so that no one may take away your crown. We have a wonderful, bright future if we stick with it. Well, anyway, God bless all of you. I hope we all have a wonderful Sabbath day, and I will close with that.